Pushkin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. Before they were legends of outlaw country, they were lost souls looking for their sound. Don't miss Mandy Moore in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Hear how one woman's vision and her tiny living room, far from Nashville's Music Row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash the Boar's Nest. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Mary Clayton is a legendary backup singer and one of the few who managed to consistently steal the spotlight. Southern man Mary grew up singing in her father's Baptist church in New Orleans before becoming a part of Ray Charles' backing group, The Raylettes, in 1966. From there, her powerhouse vocals appeared on a number of classic songs from artists like Leonard Skinner, Neil Young, and Carole King. Mary's journey from a renowned backup singer to a solo artist was documented in the Oscar-winning documentary 20 Feet from Stardom in 2013. Almost exactly one year after the film was released, Mary was involved in a near-fatal car accident in Los Angeles. That accident resulted in her losing both of her legs. After years of intensive physical therapy, Mary was back in the studio working with her longtime producer, Lou Adler, on brand new material. Her new album, Beautiful Scars, is a testament to her enduring faith, featuring songs by famed songwriter Diane Warren, and also Coldplay's Chris Martin. On today's episode, Mary Clayton talks to Bruce Headlam about the lasting impression hearing Mahalia Jackson and Aretha Franklin sing in church left on her as a little girl. She also recalls how the Rolling Stones convinced her to get out of bed in the middle of the night and sing on their 1969 classic, Gimme Shelter. And how Chris Martin was the first person to get Mary back in the studio after her tragic car accident. This is Broken Record, 
Liner Notes for the Digital Age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's Bruce Hedlum and Mary Clayton. So this new album, it's it's got some great old songs. It's got a lot of gospel. When did the idea for the album come to you? Well, uh, it actually, in the beginning, didn't come to me. It came to my Uncle Lou. I was When I was in the hospital, after my accident, I would speak to Lou like every day, you know, maybe two or three times a day. And because I was in the hospital for almost five months, I would speak to Lou and he kept saying to me, so Mary, when you get out of there, you need to be singing. I said, yeah, sure, 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 you know. And he would keep he would keep revisiting the same thing. And of course, I'd say, well, yeah, I, well, I'll think about all of that. So when I finally got out of the hospital, he said to me, well, what do you think? You think you want to you, you want to record again? I said, well, no, I really don't know. I've got to get through what I'm going through before I even think about recording again. He said, but you're going to be OK. Don't don't you know, don't worry. The main thing he said, I want you to do is is get well. And once you get well, we'll revisit it again. So about eight months into my recovery, I got a call from uh, from my, my then manager. And he says, you know, I got a great call from um, well, from Chris Martin. I said, Chris Martin, what are they calling for? He said, well, they, they wanted to call to see how you were doing and how's Mary and how's she feeling, how's the recovery going and whatever. He said, well, we're going to be in town in about two weeks. And we would love it if Mary, if we can get Mary to come by the studio. So I spoke to my manager and I said, you know what? That'd be a great time for me to get out and just kind of hang in the studio and hang with the guys. You know, So I went to the studio and um, we just kind of hung out and, and talked and uh, listened to them. This is when they were recording Kaleidoscope. But now in the meantime, Lewis called me. He said, I hear that you're visiting Chris Martin. I said, yeah, I'm, I'm here with the guys at, at the old A&M studios. So, of course, after the kaleidoscope sessions, he kept saying to me, Mary, you need to be recording. So we called my great producer friend, Terry Young. And Terry said, you know what? I've got three great songs. I'm coming over. I said, okay. And he came over with Oh, What a Friend. That was the first song. And then he came back with God's Love. Then he came back again with another song. And we just went over the songs and, and Lou heard it and we loved it. So he says, you know what? I'm going to make a call and we're going to get going to the studio. Where would you like to do this? I said, well, I'd love to do it. At, at I'd like to go home and do it, which is a and Recording Studio to me, which is the Henson studio. And uh, we went into Henson and it, was, and it was on. That's amazing. Now, had you known Coldplay before you sang on that album? I knew Chris. I didn't know the rest of the guys. So what was it like? First time after your accident to be in there singing, what did it feel like? Well, it felt like any other recording session, really, or any other, you know, just hanging out with some friends and they wanted my presence and my spirit to be there. So as I as we were kind of hanging out, Chris says, you know what, let's go out to the piano. So here he comes, you know, he's wheeling me out to the to the piano. And we got to the piano. He said, Mary, can you sing this little part? I said, well, what little part? I wasn't supposed to sing. He said, oh, you can sing this little part. So he says, go in the booth. Let's let's go in the booth and put that on. But that's how that started. Then I put one part on, a background part on. Then I put another background part on. Then they called me two other times to uh, to do the same thing again. And we just kind of kicked it and had a great time. And 
did a little recording, but I didn't have a problem going in the studio. That was like drinking water. What songs had you done in that studio? Well, I did the Mary Clayton album there and that very studio, which I didn't even know where I was going. I had no idea that, that the studio, that the session with Coldplay was even going to be at Henson A&M. I just, you know, they were driving and they wouldn't tell me anything. So when I got there and they took me into the studio, I said, oh, my God, this is my studio. You know, this is where I did this. What did you do here? I said, I did the Mary Clayton help here. And we also did Tapestry here. The Mary Clayton album was your second album, right? Was Gimme Shelter your first? Yes. So that had that incredible version of Southern Man on it. Yes. Do you remember recording that? Of course. I remember every session I ever did. I want to hear about that one because it's such a great song, the way you do it. It was fabulous. Well, thank you. Lou had suggested that song to my husband, who also worked for Lou at uh, on the A&M lot. And we got home one evening and he said, you know what, we need to listen to this song. Lou asked, you know, to, to check it out to see if you'd like it and, and if you would want to record it. So I listened to it and I listened to it again. I listened to it a couple of times. I said, you know what? If we just funk this up a little bit, I think this would be a great song. The message was incredible at that time. So then I had my great friend Billy Preston played on that. I had, I think, Joe Sample. I, I had a, a couple of the Crusaders. I had David T. Walker. I had all the great musicians on it. So we got through with and did it the way we wanted to do it. Then we loved it. Had you known Billy Preston from Ray Charles then when you sang with him? Well, this is another story. Billy and I were, were childhood friends. We knew each other from nine years old. Are you kidding? No. Billy went to a church called Victory Baptist Church, he and his mom and family. And I went to a church on the other side of town called Mount Moriah Baptist Church. So these two Black churches would always visit each other. They would like hold revivals where a minister would come in and preach for a whole week you know, and hold these great revivals, and they had these great choirs to sing. And I went to Billy's church and saw this little guy, nine years old, playing this Hammond organ. And I said, well, who is that? And my mom said, that's Billy. That's Robbie, Robbie's, Robbie's son, Billy, little, little Billy. So they got us together and we became great friends as kids. And whatever Billy would do, I would do. Whatever Billy would play, I would play. So we kind of mimicked each other and whatever record company he would go to, I would go to. Whatever he would do, he would always recommend me to do vocals. So that's how our whole situation worked until, you know, he left this earth. Did you sing with him in church way back when? Oh, God, yes. Yes, absolutely. When we were kids, we always sung. Billy would play and I would sing. And you did you sing solo in your church? Of course. I was the baby, I was the baby girl from, um, God, I had to be four, maybe four or five years old. And your dad was the pastor? Yes, he was. Um, now, but New Orleans had such great secular music as well as church music. Yes. When you got older, were, did you go out and start seeing like New Orleans greats or did your dad not like that? What happened in my situation was, at my dad's church, it was every maybe two weeks, there would be great singers that were in town doing gospel in New Orleans. And they would all come to my dad's church to, to sing. You know, uh, my, my dad's great friend was Mahalia Jackson, 
And Mahalia loved, I just loved, they were really great. They, they kind of came up together. And she would always, when she was in town, she'd always come. And I, some kind of way, would find where she was and go and sit and nestle myself right up under her. She would be on one side and Linda Hopkins, she would always sit with Linda Hopkins. Linda Hopkins was my dad's friend also. She was a great singer. So when Mahalia was there, whatever she was saying, I would mimic her the next Sunday. And different Sundays, Sam Cook may walk in and, you know, he may be in town and he would come and sing at dad's church and with the soul stirrers. He was the soul stirrers at that time. So all the gospel, all the great gospel singers, Aretha's dad, Reverend Franklin would come and he would, you know, have a word or whatever. And uh, Aretha would sing, you know, so everybody kind of knew each other, you know, and I was like, I was about like seven or eight years old. Did you ever sing with Aretha or with Mahalia? Well, I didn't sing with Mahalia, but I did sing with Aretha. If anyone knows me more than 30 years, my family doesn't know me as Mary Clayton. My All my family and close, close friends call me baby sister. And my sister named me that uh, before I was born. My mom asked her, what does she want for Christmas? And she said, I want a baby sister. So Christmas Day, I came. So all my life, I've always been known to my family, close inner circle friends as baby sister. So Aretha would call me and, and say, let me speak to Big Daddy. I said, you speak to Big Daddy? Well, that's what they would call my husband. Let me speak to Big. And Curtis would get on the phone and he'd work out whatever they wanted to work out. And my husband would come to me and say, the queen wants you to come to New York. I said, the queen, come to New York. Yeah, she's doing Avery Fisher Hall or she's doing whatever. And she wants you to come. She wants to see you. And she wants you to come and sing with her. So they would pack me up and send me to New York or wherever Aretha was. And I would sing with her group. You know, I would sing whoever, whatever she wanted me to do. I was there for her. And this went on for years. I have to ask you, do you remember Sam Cooke and the Soulsters singing? Absolutely. Do you remember what they sang? I think it was Jesus gave me water and it was not from the well. Oh, Jesus gave me water. Jesus gave me water. Jesus gave me water. I want to let his praises swell. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I remember that. Wow. What I don't understand is how you went from you're singing in your dad's church, you're in New Orleans, and then you moved to L.A. I think, was it pretty young you moved to L.A.? I moved to L.A. when I was eight, almost nine years old. Oh, I see. When did you start singing on records then? When did you start doing backup and, and that kind of thing? Well, I started doing backup uh, at 14. I was, think I was in junior high school getting ready to go to high school. And um, I went to a session with someone, I don't remember who, and they heard me sing. They said, you know what? You need to join the group. Why don't you come and just sing with us? So they picked me up. I went to the session and I sung. Just so happened this particular session was for Bobby Darren. Was, was that the song, uh, Who Can I Count On? No, 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 no. It wasn't that particular song. This is where he heard me sing and asked me, who are you? What is your name? He said, you, you're singing really loud. And I would back up and we start again. And I would start singing loud again, you know, and I'd back up some more. And then they went, he said, well, who is, who is that voice? So he finally brought me in the booth, brought me behind the, uh, the board and said, sing your part. 
So I'd sing my part. He says, wow, you sure can sing. And uh, we had another session. He said, you know what? I would certainly like to speak to your parents because I'd like to record you. You know, he got with my mom and um, they talked about what was necessary. And what was necessary was that I take a nap. <laughs> they would pick me up from school. I'd take a nap. And they had to correct my homework. And then I could go downstairs and catch Capitol Records and sing with Shorty Rogers in the big band. Was that scary for you? Well, no. You know, when you when you come up singing in the church, I came up with singing with some great singers. So I wasn't intimidated at all. I never have been intimidated to sing with anybody at any time, anywhere, and with anybody. It really didn't bother me at all. And I remember that session because it was sort of late in the evening, almost like about 6, 6.30, 7 in the evening. And I kept saying, what are they going to do my song? What are we going to do our song? So Mr. Darren would tell me, he says, well, the next song is going to be our song. So they put me in a booth. My section was on one side and he was in front of me on the other side in the microphone. So I would start singing and he told me what he wanted me to sing. And I just sung it. And he was like, where does that come from? Uh, it was funny to me. He said, where do you, how who taught you how to sing like that? You know, I said, I don't know. I just sing like that in church all the time. He says, well, I'm, you, you should be singing all the time. So when, when we did the listen back, I was able to hear myself and say to my, I said to myself, my God, that really sounds good. <laughs> did you, did you want to be a, a singer at that point? Or was it just something you did? No, I didn't particularly want to be a singer. I just wanted to sing. You know, I didn't know that it really meant being a singer. I just love singing. Uh, and what was Bobby Darren like? Was he was he a nice guy in the studio? Was he helpful? He was wonderful. He was just a joy. What a joy. A very kind, very loving man. I mean, he was very, it was a big session. This was a huge session. And this was with Shorty Rogers' big band, you know. Yeah. So to hear that, to hear that orchestra, and, and well, you heard the song. You oh. heard the orchestration. Yeah, the song is great. And it was it was just it was killer. I said, oh, my God, I get to sing with all of this. And I would always say, wow, that sounds like Ray Charles's band, because he was like the only guy that we would get a chance to really see maybe once a year was Ray Charles. Growing up, you'd only see Ray Charles was the only guy you would see. Yeah. Why was that? Well, my father was a minister. You couldn't be hanging out and and, and lollygagging somewhere you had no business being at that age, at 14, 15 years old. That was not going to happen. Not in my house. Did he make an exception for Ray Charles? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Do you remember the first time you saw him? Yes. Billy and I. Here, here, here we go again. Billy and I. Billy and I and my sister went to see him. And my dad allowed that. And my, and my uh, music professor, Eddie Kendricks. So we, we go and see Ray and Billy and I find our way at the, at the really front of the stage. We, they were standing. You could stand and watch the show. And we were standing at the front of the stage. And I was talking to Billy and he was talking to me. And he looked at me and he said, we can do this. I said, I can sing like those girls. He said, I can play like those guys. And we looked at each other and said, you know, one day we may just get a chance to sing with Ray Charles. I said, boy, that show would be great. And, you know, about five or six years later, you know, he heard Billy and just lost his mind when he heard Billy. He loved Billy. Ray absolutely adored Billy. So Billy called me one day and said, hey, what are you doing? I said, I'm folding towels. 
He says, you need to get up here. You need to get up here and sing for Ray. I said, Ray, who? He says, Ray Charles, put on something cute and, and, and come up here to the RPM building. Well, of course I did what he said. And I went, went to the RPM building, had my, uh, my sister to take me to the RPM building and sung for Ray and left with a contract. And he wanted us to go out on tour with him. So he spoke to my mom, you know, my mom and dad, and they said, you know, we're, we have to see about that. And then we, uh, my mother found out that Billy was going and his mother found out that I was, you know, thinking about going. And uh, the parents talked and, you know, they figured out, you know, this would be a good, great experience for them. We have to have somebody to look out for them. So the lookout person for us was Curtis Amy, who was the uh, musical director. He's a pretty good lookout guy. Yeah, he was, you know, I met him. We fell deeply in love with each other and married in 1970 and was married for 32 years. So when did you start touring with Ray Charles then? What year was that? In 1966. What was he like as a band leader, Ray Charles? Oh, boy. He was a taskmaster. You had to be on your game. If you were not on your game, you could not be on tour with him. He was a wonderful man and a great teacher. Everything I learned, I knew how to sing harmony. But I mean, I really knew how to sing harmony when, when you know, when I, I parted uh, and left Ray Charles. He had that very close, close because he had four singers, four girls. That's hard harmony to sing if you're not, you don't have a good ear, you know. But he taught us, we would rehearse with us every day because he wanted a certain sound and you had to sing it. And you know, you had to sing it the way he taught you to sing it. So did he, did he do a lot of the arranging himself or he, did he have arrangements for you? No, he had arrangements for us. He knew what he wanted his girls to sound like. Right. He knew, he knew exactly. He already had his big arrangements, but he knew what he knew with his vocal. He wanted his vocals to sound like, you know, so that's why that's why he meticulously took time. I mean, we were rehearsed every day. We get into a city and he'd run out the ballroom and sit. It, we'd sit in this big ballroom with this big baby grand and we'd sit around the piano and he'd work out parts with us every day. It didn't matter if you knew it or knew the part or not. You were you you had to sing it again. Because he had to know that you knew it. Wow. Yeah. Can you remember, what were the hard songs to sing with him, of his hits? For me, it was Together Again. If you saw 20 Feet from Stardom, I'd talk about that song. I mean, I could not hear the second part. I just could not hear it. Bobby Womack was in the band at that time. And Bobby, everybody everybody was trying to help me with these notes. He said, baby, I'm going to play this part. I'm going to play a, a first note. And when you hear that note on my guitar, you that's the part you come in on. My husband, Curtis, said, okay, and I'm going to play this particular note on the saxophone. Everybody was trying to help me. I could not hear the note. So we were in Carnegie Hall. And do you know, when it came time to sing that song, I got ready to sing the song was Together Again. And my part was... Together again, the great skies are gone. That was the second part. I could not hear it. And I did not sing the correct note. And do you know that he took his finger and banged out my part? He took his finger and banged out my part. Well, I tell you one thing, no one had to tell me about that part again. I could sing that part in my sleep (laughs) (laughs) because I wasn't going to be made to look like a fool. (laughs) Did you sing on recordings with him as well? Yeah, I did Let's Go Get Stone with him. 
which was his very first hit. And I uh, also worked on, oh, God, Eleanor Rigby for the movie In the Heat of the Night. And, oh, God, I worked on several things with him. Did you decide to leave to do more backup in your own work then? Well, I wanted a career for myself. We, my husband and I had discussed it. I was engaged to Curtis by then. And we had discussed it. And I discussed it with my mom. And, you know, I, I just felt like I could, I could be a great artist by myself. Did Ray Charles understand that? Well, no, he didn't want us to leave. He didn't want me to leave at all. And he sure didn't want his conductor to leave. Yeah. Because like we were we were his favorite. He loved me and Billy and he loved uh, he loved Curtis. So he said he did not. Oh, that did not make him feel too good at all. Later, later years, we talked about it. He would always say, Sister Mary, you just left me. So, my God, he's still horning on Sister Mary. You just left me because that's what he would call me with Sister Mary. You just you just you just left me. I said, well, you know, I, I wanted a career. I couldn't have a career out on the road with you. We'll be back with more from Mary Clayton after a break. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? Through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer helped shape the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed The Boar's Nest, Sue's place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, would spur each other on to tap into something bigger, realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Bacharach as Shel Silverstein and T.J. Osborne as Johnny Cash, alongside a full ensemble cast, Audible invites you to enter the Boar's Nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of Outlaw Country Music. Listen now at audible.com slash the boar's nest. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. In my book, David and Goliath, I tried to figure out how some people find the strength to take on the established way of thinking and turn it upside down. What does it take to be a disruptor? And I concluded that a disruptor is someone with a rare combination of three traits. First, you have to be open. You have to be willing to see and do things in new ways. Secondly, you have to be conscientious, to follow through and make things happen. Those two are obvious, but the third one is the crucial one. You have to be willing to do what you think is right, even when everyone around you thinks you're an idiot. There isn't a brilliant innovator in history who wasn't surrounded by naysayers. 
Most of us can't take that kind of criticism and we fold. But the disruptor doesn't. They soldier on. I've been looking at disruptors and their success stories a lot lately, partly because I'm working on a follow-up to The Tipping Point. And market disruption plays a key role in how ideas take off. But also because I'm going to be the keynote speaker at this year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business. It's an event where customers are recognized for kicking convention to the curb to elevate their company, while also doing meaningful things for their community and even the world. In fact, I'll be presenting the first ever Tipping Point designation, a new special distinction honoring one entrant that sparked transformative change for their organization. If this event sounds like your thing, I encourage you to find out more or even enter the unconventional awards to be recognized for your disruptive thinking. Win a donation to a charity of your choice and much more. You can enter before July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. We're back with Mary Clayton and Bruce Hedlund. So when did you meet Lou Adler in all of this? Okay, so I met Lou. Lou was doing an album called Dylan's Gospel. All Bob Dylan songs, but he wanted to do them in a gospel flair. So he wanted to call all the great singers in L.A. to do these particular sessions, which consisted of the Honeycombs. He wanted all the great background singers. So, you know, he put out the call and Gene Page called me, the great arranger. He says, Mary, you know, I'm doing this record with the producer Lou Adler, and I have a couple of songs that may be great for you. Come to my office and let's kind of go over them. If you feel like you like them, we'd like for you to sing them on this record. So I went to Jeans and I loved the songs, you know, and they were right. They were right up my alley uh, because they were, you know, they had a gospel flair to them. And I could sing that in my sleep. So the session was in about two weeks, went to the studio and uh, everybody had a different lead on different songs. So I, I met Lou at the studio and then we did, uh, I think the first song was. Quinn the Eskimo and times are changing. Well, by times of the change were changing, Lou pulled me in the hallway and said, you know what? I'd like to talk to you after all this is over. So we met with Lou at his office, my husband and I, and he offered me a deal. Wow. And I was, re- I was really ready for a deal and he gave me a great deal. And we decided to, to sign with Lou. That was 1969. Now you, you had a lot of friends who were who were uh, background singers. Yeah. Was it really competitive among you to get jobs? Was it a tough business to be in? No, I didn't think it was tough. It wasn't tough for me. I just always thought that if it was for you to have or for you to be on, you'd be on it. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, if it wasn't, then you wouldn't. (laughs) I mean, there, there were so many different singers that we all just loved each other. We really, really cared for each other. So whatever somebody could help each other, Somebody would call me and say, well, you know what? They're doing a session for Motown and they need a top or they need a second soprano. You sing everything, Mary. So can you just come to the studio? I said, sure. And I'd go. And there would be other singers. There would be Clyde King. There'd be Vanetta Fields. Maybe Shirley Matthews. Maybe Patrice and Brenda Holloway. There would be uh, Gloria Jones. These, these ladies were all great singers and writers. So I didn't, they were, I didn't, I didn't detect any competitiveness in that. We were all just grateful to be doing this wonderful work. 
And then before you did your first album, you did the Gimme Shelter session. Yes. Which is very famous. They called you in the middle of the night. Yes. Now, do you still understand why when you were called in the middle of the night, you were very pregnant? Yeah. You delivered just such an incredible performance. Well, I think um, every time I go to a record date or do anything, I bring everybody that has ever been good to me, everybody that has said anything nice to me, everybody that has prayed for me or really been for me, meaning all of my ancestors. I bring all my ancestors with me wherever I go and whatever I do, especially when I'm singing or doing my craft. And I brought all of them with me that night because they had to help me because that was a long, it wasn't a long night, but it was a very strange feeling that night in the, in the, in the air. You know, it was a beautiful feeling, but it was a little strange, you know, getting up at almost 11 o'clock at, at night to go into a session and Jack Nietzsche calling that late. Jack has never called me that late to come to the studio. So, as you know, of course, you probably heard my husband. I'm talking to Jack, and my husband takes the phone and says, Hey, man, what's going on? He says, Well, we'd love this group to call the rolling. And before he could get stones out, my husband grabs the phone. He says, Well, what's going on? He says, Well, they would love to have a lady sing on this part. And Curtis, Jack, when Jack talked, he would always talk like, Curtis. I think it would be something great for Mary later on down the line. I think he was always really great and always in my corner, Jack Nietzsche. So he says, well, uh, baby, I really think that you should maybe. He said, you know how you are. It won't take you long to do this. So I opened the front door and the car is sitting down at the end of the, the stairwell down there waiting for me. And the, and the driver's standing on the, you know, kind of leaning on the car. So I go to the studio and Mick and Keith, had been out in the back. So they're coming through the back door. They were out doing whatever that they did. And they said, well, are you Mary? I said, yes. This says, well, we want you to do this part. And of course, that's the old children, just a shot away, just a shot away. So I did that. And then it got to the part of rape murder. Well, first of all, old children, just a shot away was very, very high. It was very, very high. So I sung it. And of course, I had everything and everybody around me that I brought with me and they helped me to get through it. But when they got to rape murder, I was like, rape murder. I turned to, to Keith and I said, honey, I'm here by myself. I know you don't want me to say nobody, no rape murder. They said, yeah. They said, well, tell me what does this mean regarding the song? So when they gave me the gist of the song, I said, OK. So we started to sing rape murder. And boy, it even got higher when I started singing Rape Murder. And I mean, being pregnant like that, I don't know if I really should have been singing that high, but something just took me over, you know, just took over my whole being almost. And at that time, it was a lot of um, racism going on. It was uh, the war in Vietnam. It was Dr. King and, you know, the Black movement going on. It was just a lot of it was just very weird out there in the street. Policemen, the brutality. And I think I kind of took that spirit on that night. And it was like I was just crying out to the heavens to please give me shelter. Give us shelter from all this stuff that's going on here. Because it touched me very deeply. So by the time I got finished with that, it was like I left myself. And then I came back to myself. And by the time I came back to myself, they said, well, they were hooting and hollering in the booth, just hollering and screaming in the booth. And um, I'm looking at them and 
I said, okay, do you want me to do one for say, oh, just do one more. Can you do one more? Can you keep the crack? Oh, can you keep the crack that's in your voice? And it was so late, my voice cracked. That's why my voice cracked. Right. You know, in that song. And my voice cracked. And it, it, it apparently that was that was good. And they said, can you give us one more? Please keep the crack. Don't, don't, don't get rid of the crack. I said, well, I'll try. But that's just what my voice did that time of night. So I did it again. And before they could come out, I was waving goodbye and I was on my way home. And that was about, the I did about three takes of that and I was done. Were you surprised when it became a big hit? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It was a humongous hit. Yes, I was. What was it like when you did it for your album? Because it's very different. Oh, I was having fun. I, As I said, I brought everybody with me, you know, and I had all of my great musicians in there with me. And uh, I had some of my family there and we just had a great time. It was just a great time because it was my first album, period. My first record and uh, as Mary Clayton. And um, it, it was wonderful. I, I just had really a great time. What a great groove. Louis Shelton on the guitar. It, it was just wonderful. You do a version of Bridge Over Troubled Water. Yes. Which, you know, people know the original and they know Aretha Franklin's version. But this version is, it's very different. Yes. It's really wonderful. Can you talk a bit about that? When we did that song, you know, that was just how I was feeling. I was feeling like a bridge over troubled water. You know, you, you have to have a certain feeling to sing those type of songs. And there's still a lot of turmoil going on in the world. And I felt like we were definitely a bridge that was over some troubled water. You know, and I just brought all of my spiritual stuff into the, the session with me that day. And everybody just seemed to love it. But that was just my spirit. That's what that was, was dwelling in my spirit that day. I think that we had just we had just done the Monterey Pop Festival and I had the whole Love Unlimited band with me at uh, that festival that day. So I tried to recreate that when I went into the studio and it just turned out so great. Uh, we were very happy with that. And then you did your next album with Southern Man and Steamroller and um, yeah, you did a Carol King song. You had sung on Tapestry. Is that right? Yeah, I did a duet with Carol on Tapestry called Way Over Yonder. Oh, I didn't realize that was you. Yeah, that's me. And did you do other background on that album as well? Yeah, I did all the the vocal background on Tapestry. Myself and Julia Waters did. Oh, incredible. Mm -hmm. What was Carol King like to work with? Like my sister. We're very close. We're very, very close. We've always been close. We're still close. She was a joy. She, She loved my husband. And uh, he did Brother to Brother with her. And he worked on, on Tapestry also with her, you know. But we, we were like family, you know, we were the same record label. And we would, all, we would always do everything together. You know, we had kids, you know, and um, we would ne- we'd never talk about anything but the children. <laughs> we, we didn't talk about music at all. You know, sometimes we talk about music. But our main conversation was always about the kids. You know, the kids were always on the lot there at A&M. And kind of hanging out, you say, oh, come and get Kevin. Yeah, Mary Clayton's son is in the office causing havoc. Uh, Carol's kids would be there. So we were like a big family. And she was like, I came one night. I was taking a girlfriend out to dinner. And I didn't have 
the credit card. So I stopped by to get the credit card from my husband. And Carol was waving me in to come, come here, come here. I said, well, what, what's going on? She says, come, I want you to sing this little part. And it was way over yonder. So I sung that part and I went on out to dinner with my girlfriend. That's amazing. <laughs> is that funny? When we went to do the listen back, she said, this is what you did. Listen to yourself. Is the sun shining golden? Shining right down. I said, oh, Carol, that's great. She said, oh, Lou says, oh, Mary, it was wonderful. And it turned out really, really great. So we were happy about that. Why were you able to do things so quickly? Did you read music by this point? Of course I did. But I didn't have to, I didn't have to read music to do Way Over Yonder. I mean, it was like, it was like a church field. Way Over Yonder is a place where I know that I could find shelter from hunger and cold. And the sweet taste and good life is so easily found. Way over yonder, that's where I'm bound. It was very, it was like going to choir rehearsal. Uh, she says, sing these lyrics and sing them how you feel it. So that's what I did. Wow, did you make your dinner reservations? Of course I did. You you made it on time and you, you sang a hit on the way there? <laughs> I think Lou called um, the restaurant and said, they're going to be about maybe 20, 25 minutes later. And then when we got there, everything was set up and ready. Oh, nice. So, you know, so many people know you from 20 Feet from Stardom. Yeah. And you said something in that film I think about a lot, which is you said, every time I get ready to do something, something would knock me to my knees. Yeah. Uh, And you were talking about solo stuff and other things you would do. You know, you had this accident. It was very traumatic. You lost your husband years before that. Mm Mm-hmm. Did your faith in your ability to get up and do this, did it ever wane? No, never waver. My my faith has never wavered from a child. I knew what I knew. I knew who I was. I've always known who I was. But more than that, I've always known whose I was. I always knew and I was always taught that I was special, that I was a gift, and that I was descendants of royalty. I was a queen. And 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 I was and I was great. I was always taught that, you know, that we were always taught that we were wonderful just the way we were, and we were always God's property. So never waver. What whatever God does or whatever God allows in my life, you take it as how you as how you deal with it. You know, it's it's like I was speaking to a great lady in my life one day at a huge party, and. Um, I got her ear and I was complaining about something. I think it was a deal that was was about to go down. It was taking too long. And, oh, I don't know if I want to do it. And da, 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 da. I said, why, why, why does it take so long to get stuff done? So she looked at me and stared at me for a long time. And she says, baby, she said, that's called L-I-F-E. She said, that's life. She says, but it's about what you do in life. How are you going to handle a situation in life? It's not the situation. It's how you handle it that would help you get through it. And I always remember that. That was uh, that lady was my godmom, Della Reese. You know, when, when I had my accident, she says, now she went back to the same thing. She says, well, however you deal with this is how you're going to come out of it. She said, OK, she said, I want you to gather yourself. She said, how are you going to deal with this? I said, I'm going to deal with it with love and with dignity. She said, you know who you are? I said, I know exactly who I am, mom. 
And um, she said, well, you, you're going to get through this and you're going to get through it in victory. So don't waver on what you've known all your life. So no, my faith has never wavered. And I've never asked, you know how some people, when they go through things, they always, oh God, why? And I don't think of myself, you know, when this happened, I talked to, uh, spoke to my brother and, um, you know, I tried to cry the blues to my brother. I said, well, I don't know you know, why this particular thing, you know, had to happen. He says, well, there's a purpose in everything, you know, he says, so again, he says, you know who you are. And uh, again, you know, whose you are, because this is what we were taught. So you, you'll get through it, but it's also, it's going to be a challenge. He says, but such is life, you know, life is a challenge. Nobody gets out of this without scars. We'll be back with Mary Clayton after this quick break. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards, a hotel upgrade, lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Willie Nelson. Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? Through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted audible original, The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer helped shape the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed The Boar's Nest, Sue's place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, would spur each other on to tap into something bigger, realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Bacharach as Shel Silverstein and TJ Osborne as Johnny Cash, alongside a full ensemble cast. Audible invites you to enter the boar's nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Listen now at audible.com slash the boar's nest. Hello, hello, Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History. If you've watched a professional tennis match recently, you'll know that fans had this amazing new tool at their disposal. It was created by the consulting company Infosys and the Association of Tennis Professionals. It's an immersive 3D viewing experience for tennis fans, which allows them to watch matches from new angles, get real-time statistics, and better understand the inner workings of the game and its athletes. Basically, a completely new data-driven way to appreciate a tennis match. It's been a huge hit. And I'm proud to say that the Infosys Tennis Platform earned first place 
in the customer experience category at the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event held at Mobile World Congress in Las Vegas that celebrates customers who've boldly innovated for the sake of meaningful change. And I think it's important to point out that innovation like this doesn't just require a great idea and exploit some great underlying technology. It takes courage. Because tennis is a game with a long history and some pretty powerful traditions. I mean, you can only wear white at Wimbledon. Still, it's the 21st century. And here was an idea that said we can dramatically change the way a fan watches a match. We can feed them data. We can allow them to see things they could never see before with the naked eye, or even conventional camera angles. If you want to turn a world upside down, you have to have a pretty strong backbone. That's a lot of what the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards are all about. Finding people and companies who show that kind of boldness. I encourage you to enter. It's a fantastic event and a great way to be recognized for your brave, outside-the-box thinking in front of the industry's most influential leaders. And an even better way to say, I told you so. You can enter by July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. We're back with the rest of Bruce Edlam's interview with Mary Clayton. But first, here's some of the title track of her brand new album, Beautiful Scars. I've been on the battlefield of life. I've been through it. But I just had to go through that to get to this I've been knocked out, I've been kicked down But fate brought me back And I'm still standing here now These are beautiful scars that I have on my heart This is beautiful proof that I've made it this far Every hurt I've endured, every cut, every bruise Wear it proud like a badge, wear it like a tattoo These are beautiful scars, yeah, yeah These are beautiful scars, yeah Your album is named Beautiful Scars for a great song. Was that song written for you by Diane Warren? Yes, it was. Okay. Have you, had you known her before? Oh, God, Yes. Everybody knows Diane Warren, but um, I think there was a movie score that I did that she was involved in. I think that um, a background session, also my granddaughter worked with a a little group that she was working with uh, from school and they would go to her studio and she came to me one day. She said, Grandma, she says, do you know, you know, Diane Warren, don't you? I said, yes. She said, we were at her studio. I said, what? I said, did she know you were my granddaughter? She said, no, Grandma, I didn't go up to her and say anything. She says, but she is really wonderful. I said, she's only one of the greatest writers in the entire world. But when we were doing the album, we were sitting in the studio uh, behind the board and Lou and Terry and I were just talking. You know, we did, we were doing a listen back and we were just talking. So Lou looked at me, he said, you know what? He said, I think I'll give a call to Diane. And I looked at him and I said, Diane who? Diane Warren? He says, yes, let's call Diane. And when he called Diane, he told her what, what he was what he was about to do. He, she says, what? 
in the studio with Mary Clayton. She's doing an album. He says, yes. She says, well, I'll have something to you in two weeks. And this woman wrote this beautiful scars. And when Terry came in with it, we all just had to leave out of the studio because everybody was just in tears when I heard this song because it was so much of what I had been through. I have definitely been on the battlefield of life and I have been through it. <laughs> but I had to go through that to get you where I am today. You know, and those words, they were so what I have been through in my life as an artist. But these are still beautiful scars. What was it like for you to sing it the first time? Oh, man, it was it was a tearjerker. You know, I had to really get myself together. I had to really get because every time I started to sing it, I started to cry. I would tear up and you could hear it in my throat. I'm sure you probably hear it in a certain part of the song. When I say everybody's got scars, you know, and that's true. Everybody has some type of scar or another. But during the time I was recording it, the first time I recorded it, Lou says, you know what? He said, I think you need to go home and really, 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 really horn in on the song. And we'll come back in two, two days. OK, Mary? I said, OK, Uncle Lou, that's cool. So I came home and played it over and 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 over until I got it in my spirit. Once I got it in my spirit, I was ready to go. So we got to the studio and the first take, they loved it. And then uh, here I go again. And then we did another one for safety. And then we did one more. And that was it for Beautiful Scars because they wanted to capture the performance of it. Yeah. And that's what we did. I want to ask you just about one more song. It's full of great gospel songs by your producer, but you redo a song I think you did on your first album, which is Leon Russell's A Song For You. Oh, yes. Oh, Bruce. Mm. My, 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 my. You know, that song, you know, like couples have songs that they really like and they go back and, and remember things that they were doing at that time in their lives. And when that song come on, you can just look at each other and say, oh, boy, I remember that song. Well, that song applied to my husband and I. And that was Kirk, my and Curtis's song because he would always say, I always feel, Mary, that you're singing that song for me. I said, well, I am singing that song for you. And when I recorded that song, we just fell in love with it. And of course, we loved Leon. And when I recorded it for this album, see, I didn't know that Lou and Terry were going to pull Curtis's solo from the uh, Mary Clayton album and put it on this particular record. So one day, we're kind of hanging out, and he calls me and say, Mary, I'm going to send a um, song for you, but I want Kevin to be sitting with you when you listen to it. So I, Kevin is my son. So I called Kevin. I said, you know, your Uncle Lou wants you to be here when I listen to song for you. We had no idea what was going on. So we have these great speakers in the house. So we're sitting and we're listening. So Kevin took his finger and he was pointing to the music. And I said, why is he pointing? He said, Mom, that's Dad. That's Dad. I said, oh, my God. Lou pulled that solo from that album. And we both just, you know, it just brought us to tears. It brought us to tears. It was just, it was just so wonderful. That's why this song is so special to me. Well, it's an amazing version. Thank you. It's a terrific album. What's next for you? Are you, are you waiting to see about when you can perform again in public? Absolutely. I think we're getting ready to do a video, a couple of videos. And it's a lot of things brewing, a lot of things coming up that they tell me. We're looking forward to doing great things with this record. I want people to really be blessed by hearing this and 
be able to really touch somebody or help somebody in some kind of way with this with this music. You know, it's very important to me that, you know, I, I was telling I was telling Lou, I said, Lou, I, you know, if I don't get a dime, it doesn't matter. I just want people to be touched because this record has healed my soul and my spirit. It's really made me feel like me again. So I just wanted to bless people and people to be to be really touched and and delivered from whatever they're going through and to be lifted up in this record. You, you've already touched one. You're going to touch a lot more. It's just wonderful. Oh, thank you. And I couldn't be more thrilled you're singing again and doing it so well. So thank you. Thank you so much. God bless you guys. Thanks to Mary Clayton for sharing so many wonderful stories with Bruce. To hear a playlist of our favorite Mary Clayton songs and classic tracks that feature her on background vocals, head to brokenrecordpodcast.com. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash brokenrecordpodcast, where you can find extended cuts of new and old episodes. You can follow us on Twitter at Broken Record. Broken Record is produced with help from Leah Rose, Jason Gambrell, Martin Gonzalez, Eric Sandler, and Jennifer Sanchez. With engineering help from Nick Chafee, our executive producer is Mila Bell. Broken Record is a production of Pushkin Industries. And if you like the show, please remember to share, rate, and review us on your podcast app. Our theme music's by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richmond. Peace. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA.